It is my privilege to introduce Jordan, although pretty much most of you probably know who he is. Uh, served here in uh, youth capacity and, and uh, been in Cedar Falls for like three or four years now. And he's about ready to make a jump to Cedar Rapids. And um, <clears throat> he's at Candeo Church in Cedar Falls. Some of you may know of that church. Maybe you have kids that go to that church, um, family that goes to that church through the SALT Network. There's another church in Cedar Rapids called Veritas Church, and they've recently made a decision to bring him on, uh, and uh, he's going to help with college ministry, specifically men's ministry, and pouring into those college students. Uh, before he gives his message, I just kind of wanted to give us an idea of, of where the Lord's leading in his life and the direction that God has called him. And Ellie, they just got a place in Cedar Rapids. They're kind of putting their roots down there. And um, I read Jordan's support letter. And it said that there's like 18,700 students in Cedar Rapids. And so that goes from Coe College to Kirkwood to Cornell to Mount Mercy. Got it all right, yeah? And this is what blew me away in your letter, Jordan, is that only 1% of those 18,700 students are plugged into a student ministry. And so you think, I mean, college is like, that level where students kind of break out into their own little world, you know, and there's this learning and there's this growth that takes place, and only 1% of those students in that town are engaged in a student ministry. Jordan has put it on his heart to say, God, I want to make a difference in that percentage. And so we're excited. We're behind you. When he's done with his message today, we'll get a chance as a congregation to pray over him and just ask God to bless his future. Uh, but before we get to that point, I wanted to just kind of lay that groundwork and then allow Jordan to come up and uh, share from his heart. So let's pray together, and then Jordan, you just let it rip, man. All right. All right. Father, thank you so much for Jordan, and I just thank you for his heart and how you've stirred in him over the years. Uh, Lord, I think back to that time you saved him, and uh, Lord, you brought him into that relationship with you. and. And, Lord, how you developed him and nurtured him and, and brought him to where he's at today. That's all a part of the story that's going to enter into this next chapter. He and Ellie both, I pray, Father, you'd bless them. And uh, we're just thankful for the word that you've placed on his heart. We ask your blessing over uh, the things that are on his spirit to share with us. I pray our hearts would be ready to receive. And we thank you for this now. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody who's ready to receive a word said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ross. All right, if I can make it through the first two minutes of this without crying, we'll be good. So, um, I preach today from a Bible owned by my, a veteran that's near and dear to my heart, Chuck Howell. It's my dad. It's his Bible, and uh, he went to be with the Lord in March of 2016. And as I think back to my last days with my dad, many of you know that people that are on hospice and are nearing the end of their life, they have what is really in my mind a miraculous moment where they kind of come to and can talk to you and can speak can speak life to you, and they're coherent. And as I reflect on what my dad told me, he summed it up essentially as this. 
Stay strong in the faith, be good to Ellie, and take care of your mom. Those are the three things he said. And I say that because when somebody is in their dying days, they don't come to you and they don't say, remember Thursday is garbage day, <laughs> right? They don't, they don't tell you things that matter this week or next week. They don't say, hey, remember Mother's Day is coming up. They talk about things that really matter to them based on their life, and they're speaking life to you moving forward, saying, this is what really matters. I give that story as a background to lay the foundation of the text we're about to enter into today. We're reading in 2 Timothy, and this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to his dear friend Timothy. And what you need to know about Paul is he is currently imprisoned in Rome. It's about AD 65, and what we know about this time frame is that Paul is awaiting his execution. This is Paul's last letter that we find in the scriptures. And so, as we read this letter, we need to understand that Paul is knowingly about to die. And he writes his dear friend Timothy, who is his spiritual son. He calls Timothy, my dear son in the faith. And he has very specific things to talk about to Timothy, specifically that the gospel is worth suffering for. So remember, he's in prison facing execution, and he's saying, Timothy, I've been abandoned. The people that you know used to run with me have left me, but the gospel is worth it. He also goes on to say that dark times are present and dark times are to come, meaning people are going to stray from the gospel. People are going to dilute the truth. They're going to water it down, and ultimately, people are only going to hear what they want to hear. Sounds quite familiar to you today, doesn't it? We live in a day and age where the truth of the gospel is oftentimes watered down. And what Paul wants us to consider for the next 30 minutes is this. It's that the reality that a life saved and shaped by the gospel will require the enduring of hardships. So if you would, open your Bible with me to 2 Timothy 2. And we are going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 13. They'll also be up on the screen for you to follow along. So Paul writes, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. 
If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So we're going to do a couple exercises because I don't like talking to a silent congregation, all right? So uh, when I say, somebody say, and then I say a word, if you're a somebody, that means that you say it. And nobody wants to be a nobody, right? So if I say, somebody say grace. Grace. There we go. Good. All right. So what we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to just piece through the scriptures verse by verse. And the first thing that we see uh, Paul telling Timothy, a young Timothy, who is leading a church in Ephesus, is that enduring hardship as a faithful follower requires the grace of God. So somebody say grace. Grace. Grace is the foundation that we need to obey. What we can oftentimes do when we approach Scripture is we look at this, this hard call. You know, we look at things that appear to be strict rules to follow, hard commands to obey, such as endure suffering, control your tongue, honor your father and mother. Things that we, quite honestly, cannot live up to and obey. And there's two ditches we can fall into as we look at the scriptures and say, okay, the call is to endure. The first is legalism. Legalism says, try your hardest. Do everything you can and be strong in you. Be strong in yourself. And what you are left with is utter disappointment because you understand that you yourself You can't do it. So then what you tend to do is oftentimes water down what it means to endure, what it means to control your tongue. And it's disappointing. Legalism is what is defined as living underneath the weight of the law. Jesus did not come for us to live underneath the weight of the law. The second ditch that we can fall in is license. And what license does is quite the opposite. It looks at the command of scripture, in our case, to endure suffering and says, I know I can't do it. And because of that, forget it. I'm not even going to try. What people that, you know, succumb to license do is they say, well, guess what? Jesus came and died for me so I can do whatever I want. That is what we call the abuse of God's grace. And scripture tells us that that too is sin. So if we can't be legalists, if the strength can't be in us, and we can't give in to license and just give up, we're left with the gospel response. Strength and grace. Strength and grace follows a gospel approach something like this. God calls me to be strong and endure hardships for his truth. I cannot obey this command because I am a sinner. It recognizes that I alone can't do it. However, Jesus did obey this command perfectly, and Jesus did what I should do but can't as my substitute so that God will will accept me. And because Jesus has obeyed perfectly and now lives inside of me, I am now accepted by God, and I am free to obey this command by his grace and power at work in me. So Christian, know this. You are required to endure suffering. The Bible tells us, actually, if you were to read one chapter on, it says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution and hardship is guaranteed. 
know this, you are not alone, and you need the grace of God. So as we move on to verse 2, we see Paul telling Timothy that he is to entrust to reliable men what has been shared in the presence of many witnesses. This is the gospel. The gospel that we alone are separated from God in our sin. And that Jesus came to bridge the gap. He lived the perfect life and died a gruesome death that we deserve so that we could be acceptable to God the Father. He says, entrust that to reliable people. And as I read that, I come to the understanding that if the gospel is renewing us internally, it must force us out and propel us externally. A gospel that has changed your heart will lead you into places where you are entrusting the gospel to reliable people. Paul is imprisoned and facing execution. And he's telling Timothy, remember I mentored you. And Timothy knows this is where it got Paul, <laughs> right? So the call to entrust to reliable people to Timothy is oftentimes perceived as, if I did what he did, I'm going to end up where he ends up, <laughs> which is hard, right? We as Americans in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa, we do not have hardship in light of that. We do not have hardship when it comes to entrusting to reliable people. We don't have to worry about someone burning our church down. We don't have to worry about someone taking our Bible away. But you know what? Passing the gospel on to other people might look like you uh, waking up earlier and serving as a teacher in that Sunday school class. You might have to sacrifice an hour each Sunday to wake up. You might have to make a relationship at work awkward and say, hey, we should start grabbing coffee more often. Are we willing to do just that? That's a question I ask. Are we willing to do just that? A recent survey uh, done by Pew Research shows that adults in America over the last 15 years uh, that self-identify as Christian have decreased 11%. Meanwhile, the religious nuns, meaning atheists, agnostic, etc., have increased to 9%, increased 9% in value. What this tells me is that we have a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do, because this is self-reported. This is not taking into consideration people that call themselves Christian, but are not active in their faith. So would you join me in accepting the command to entrust the gospel to reliable people when we leave this place? Let us not hoard the gospel for ourselves, but take it outside these walls into our community. The next chunk of scripture uh, that we're dissecting shows us that a life marked by the grace of God is seen in one's devotion to him. Paul gives Timothy three examples. A good soldier, 
a competing athlete, and a hardworking farmer. And as we look at these, we see that a life marked by the grace of God is devoted to God. So we'll look first at a good soldier. Uh, verse 4 says that no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Remember that Paul, in his imprisonment, he's in Rome, and prisoners, uh, especially Christians, uh, were not just thrown in a cell and left alone. They were kept under close watch. And if you've read scripture before, you know why. Because God broke chains. God let many believers out of prison by his grace and power. And so they knew that Paul had power. And they kept him under close watch with none less than a soldier. And so Paul writes to Timothy with uh, a soldier in mind. And what we need to know uh, about the life of a Roman soldier, just to give us context, because it's quite different than uh, soldiers today in, in some ways. Um, obviously, the Roman army was the largest and meanest fighting machine in, in the ancient world. They were massive. And to sign a contract with the Roman army, you had to serve a minimum 25 years. So understand this, that a commitment to the Roman military meant your life. Because most of them didn't make it through a 25-year term because they got killed in combat. But if, even if you did make it out, 25 years is a long time. These soldiers had to be fit to fight, and they could not assume any other roles or responsibility. They were responsible strictly to the Roman government and the commands placed on them by their superiors. A Roman soldier in enlisting signed a document called the Sacramentum. And what this document was, it was a military oath, and it stated that you as a soldier would fulfill your duties as a good soldier, and you agreed to punishment up to and inclusive of death should you disobey or swerve in your obedience. So the question is, why would somebody be a soldier, right? Like, why would we be a soldier? It was never in current temporary joy. Enduring as a soldier was hard. They had a difficult life. But what they had ahead of them was the reward of their service. Much like soldiers today in America, it was an honor to serve their country. And again, Rome was known as an empire, so to be a part of something bigger than yourself was an honor. Those that made it through their service were guaranteed an inheritance of land, and they also shared in the spoils of victory. As we read this, we must remember that Jesus is our commanding officer, and he is calling us to duty. I think oftentimes we're easy to see Jesus as Savior, but hard to see him as Lord. We love what Jesus has to offer us on the cross in our forgiveness, but we have a very hard time surrendering what he's calling us to do. In Colossians 3, Paul writes to the church in Colossae and he says, since then, 
you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. An example that stuck out to me in scripture uh, as somebody that followed God no matter what the cost uh, was Moses. And uh, the example of Moses is highlighted in, in Hebrews 11, but you can read the full story in Exodus. Uh, Moses actually was um, set in the reeds of the Nile by his parents, and he was found by a servant girl of Pharaoh's daughter. And what this me meant for Moses was that his childhood was raised in royalty of Egypt. He was adopted essentially as Pharaoh's daughter's son. But as Moses grew older, he realized that he was not one of them. He realized that his people were being beaten and mistreated because they were living for God. Moses decided, he made a choice to say yes to God, and he left the pleasure and privilege of Egypt to join his people. Hebrews 11 tells us that he looked forward to Christ more than the treasures of Egypt. And this challenged me as I look back over the last year of my life and the things that God had called me to do. The first tug on my heart was to go. I knew that I wasn't supposed to stay in Iowa, uh, so I thought. Um, and I felt that God was calling us to go to Michigan. Um, we had, Ellie and I had agreed to move to East Lansing, Michigan as a part of a new church plant. And as Pastor Lance knows, people in East Lansing are wretched people that need Jesus, right? Um, but what was hard for us, and when I say us, Ellie and I, is that this meant leaving family. That was hard. But we said yes. Not easily, not quickly, but we said yes. And the reason I say it wasn't easy and it wasn't quick is because we had made family a God thing. We had made a good thing a God thing. We had made the earthly pleasure of the ideal American family a God thing. But when God tells you to go, you say yes. If he is your Lord, you say yes. So we said yes. And then, of course, God throws a curveball and he says, okay, you said yes. How about now you stay in Iowa, but you quit your job and take a 50% pay cut. Now, what do you say? <laughs> I will admit that I was quick to say yes, quicker to say yes to Michigan than my wife. But when he said, hey, go into ministry, leave the insurance gig and go back to ministry, I was not quick at all. Ellie was much quicker to say, hey, this is, this is what you were made for. This is what you want to do. But again, financial security, a good thing, right? A good thing to say, hey, I wanna be able to like, provide for our kids, I want a roof over our head. I, 
in my heart, I had made that a God thing without even recognizing it. And by the grace of God, being able to come to a place that just says, yes, Lord. You cannot say, no, Lord. If he is truly your Lord, you cannot say no. And so accepting something is, you know, it seems big, but it's so simple. Maybe you're supposed to sell your house. Maybe you're supposed to change your job. Maybe, I don't know, it, it might look much different. Um, the question that I ask myself is, what worldly concerns do you find yourself entangled in, and how much will it really matter? How much will it really matter 100, 500, 1,000 years from now? I think we are quick to get caught up in everything that's going on in the world and the things that uh, we're told are important. I see far too many people today getting wrapped up in politics. I hate to say it. How much will politics matter a thousand years from now? Yes, it's important to be informed, but are you so consumed in that that your eyes are not set on the things above? The next example we look at is a competing athlete. And we're not talking participation trophies, we're talking competing athletes. Uh, Paul knows quite a bit about running. I can tell that by his references to scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, he says to run in such a way to get the prize. Later in 2 Timothy, he tells him that he has finished the race and that there is in store for him a crown of righteousness. And I know what many of you are thinking right now. You're saying, hey, Jordan, I'll move to Michigan. I'll move to Alaska even. Just do not make me start running because that is suffering that the Lord is not calling me to do. <laughs> I am one of those weird people who started enjoying running uh, several years back. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I was running a marathon up in Wausau, Wisconsin. And for whatever reason, this day had just been perfect. First 10 miles, I was running great. I uh, was actually on pace to qualify for Boston, which is quite honestly far above my pay grade, but I was just feeling good, running well. And then came mile 11. Rainy, hazy day, and uh, the first three people that were definitely gonna qualify for Boston were out in the distance. There was another group behind them of about three or four, and I was back on my own, uh, top 10, but kind of hanging by myself, and uh, had earbuds in. And what the people that were trying to tell me that were directing the races crossed the street. Except they were standing like this, saying, doing this. And what I thought they were doing was this. And so I turned, I took a hard left, and again, couldn't see the people in front of me. And about half a mile later, I realized, they're not there anymore. <laughs> Oops. And so I kind of just like, turn around and see just everybody passing me, like 50, 60 people had passed me. And I realized at that moment I was not winning the race, and I was no longer going to qualify for Boston. And what I learned from that is that I can't win if I'm not running the path marked out for me. Us too. 
We can't win unless we run the path marked out for us. Our obedience matters. Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the the race marked out for us. So I ask you, what's hindering you? What's weighing you down? Is it your guilt and shame? Is it your pride and complacency? What sin easily entangles you? Are you struggling with lust? Are you struggling with substance or alcohol abuse? Or are you like me, and maybe the outside looks clean, but you struggle with a judgmental heart that's quick to judge other people? We must, we must let go and throw these off if we want to run the race marked out for us. The last example is the hardworking farmer. And uh, it's funny, I came, upon, I came upon this and I said, a hardworking farmer. I've never met a farmer that's not hardworking. Has anybody met a farmer that's not hardworking? Anybody? And, and the funny thing is, we have farmers today that have tractors that drive themselves. I don't know how hard that work is, but I still look at them. I'm like, dang, Ben Butcher works a lot harder than I do. <laughs> um, now imagine what farming looked like in AD 65. No John Deere, no GPS, right? Hard work. And a quote from uh, William Carey came to mind. And William Carey says, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. One thing I learned as I talked with Ben um, again, out of my inexperience with, with farming, uh, Ben pretty much laid out to me the fact that you can only control so much. Uh, kind of paraphrasing what Ben had said to me, he said, all I'm responsible for doing is putting in time and being faithful in what I can control. Beyond that, it's up to God to make the crop grow. And that stuck with me as I thought about what it looks like to bear fruit. Because in John chapter 15, Jesus tells us that if we abide in him, he will abide in us and we will bear fruit. We will see a crop. And by our crop, people will come to know that we are disciples of Jesus. So everybody wins, we get the crop, which is we can rejoice in other people coming to know Jesus, and Jesus gets the glory by being lifted high. But what we are held to is a standard of faithfulness. I think we can sometimes get so caught up in not seeing the fruit, per se, we're not seeing a ton of lives changed, and we think that our labor is in vain. But Paul is writing to the Corinthian church uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, and he he says uh, kind of a threefold pattern verse where he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So what he means by that is, I told them about Jesus, Apollos built them up in Jesus, and God brought about salvation. 
So what we must remember is that we are not called to be the ones bearing the crop, growing the crop, but we must be faithful in planting and watering. We must be faithful in scattering seed, and once the seed is scattered, we must be faithful in watering it, meaning building one another up, encouraging one another, pointing each other back to Jesus. Luke 10, Jesus tells his disciples, looking out over a multitude, he says, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. And I say the same to you today, here in rural Iowa. The harvest is plentiful, and honestly, the workers are few. So would you be willing to be the hardworking farmer that says, I'm gonna plant, I'm gonna water, I'm gonna do everything I can, and I'm gonna pray to God, I'm gonna pray to the God of the harvest to make this crop grow. All right, next in our text, we're looking at verses eight through 10, uh, where we learn that salvation by the gospel will lead to suffering for the gospel. Somebody say, remember. All right, remember, verse 8, Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. When I think remember, oftentimes in my, hide, in, in my head, when Ellie's telling me, remember you were supposed to do the dishes? <laughs> that implies that I, I forgot to do the dishes, which I definitely do frequently, right? But... What Paul is saying here, the word remember means to be mindful of and to hold in memory. It does not imply that Jesus Christ was previously forgotten. And Jesus here is described as raised from the dead and descended from David. This is essential to the gospel. And Jesus being raised from the dead, it proclaims his deity, fully God descended from David, proclaims his humanity and shows that he is fully man and both are necessary for him to pay the price for us. In order for God to see us with favor and acceptance, he needed the perfect life and he needed bloodshed. That is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so I ask you this morning, when was the last time that you reflected on the reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? Easter was five weeks ago. And what I'm afraid of is that that may have been the last time many of us have really reflected on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You see, the gospel is... Um, in graduation season, I think of the, the gospel is commencement. Which, when I was in high school and they said commencement, I was like, hey, we're done, right? Like, sweet, we're done. Cash the check, I'm done with high school. But what the word commencement means is beginning. And as soon as I learned that, I'm like, ah, oh, I have more school and student debt, right? Like, commencement is the beginning. And the same thing is true with the gospel. I have uh, a chart here that is from a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. 
And uh, this is called the gospel grid. So what this will show you is that the gospel uh, is not just conversion. So when you come to accept the reality of Jesus Christ, you are just beginning to grow in the gospel. And what this shows us is that as we remind ourselves of the price that Jesus paid, we will grow in our awareness of his holiness and we will grow in awareness of our sinfulness. And this does not mean that we're more sinful, but that we're more aware of what our sin looks like. And ultimately, as you see in this picture, the cross is magnified. The cross grows. We are called to grow in the gospel. So I urge you to think frequently, to hold in memory Jesus Christ. That is how you will endure suffering, is by remembering the price that he paid for your sin. As we remember Jesus, uh, I think about Hebrews 12:2, which says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Paul is mimicking Jesus in what he's doing. He's suffering like a criminal and he's waiting to be killed. And that's how we know that he's following Jesus. 1 John 2, 5 and 6 highlights this fact. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him, who is Jesus, must walk as Jesus did. A high call. We must remember this, that we will suffer. Following Jesus, we will suffer. But as you'll see at the end of verse 9, there's a big but. I know, I shouldn't say that in church. Big but. But... God's word is not chained. God's word is not chained. What this means for us is that we will suffer, yes, but the gospel will move forward in power. Paul is suffering for the sake of the elect. He's saying, I will endure all of this so that one more person can come to know Jesus. For the joy set before Paul, he said, I will, I will do imprisonment and I will do execution if that means that this Roman soldier comes to know Jesus. No suffering is too great if it brings about the salvation of God's chosen ones. Remember that. No suffering is too great. So how about you? How about us? When is the last time that our faithfulness cost us something? Are you willing to make a relationship awkward to share Jesus? Are you willing to give up Sunday afternoon naps to invite over that younger couple that's new to the church? Are you willing to sacrifice your holy huddle for the sake of entering into dark places? Some simple questions that I reflect on as I read these verses. Paul closes this section of scripture to Timothy with uh, what is likely an early Christian hymn in verses 11 through 13. And he lays out four basic truths that propel Timothy forward. Again, as a young leader who 
struggles to be courageous. He says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. Death is the worst thing that can happen to you. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, death is not a dreaded end, but a glorious beginning. Remember that. The worst thing somebody could ever do is kill you and send you home to Jesus. That is a wonderful promise we can cling to. It says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And we know from scripture that our future reward outweighs our present suffering. In fact, the Bible tells us that they're not even worth comparing. You can suffer for a little bit, right? Lord willing, we have maybe 85 years here on earth, a little bit more, for the sake of eternity, what are you willing to endure to glorify God? The next one kind of threw me for a loop as I looked at this. Said if we disown him, he will also disown us. I'm like, how is that good news? Right? It sounds kind of harsh. And I think it comes from kind of the culture that I've just been born and raised in, which is everyone dies and goes to heaven. Like, we think that heaven is the default. And I'm here to tell you that it's not. And I don't, I don't mean to share that with you to crush you or break you, but uh, to actually, actually speak truth into your life and say, heaven is not the default. And we don't deserve heaven at all. What we deserve is hell. We deserve punishment because you and me, we're sinful. We're broken people and we can't measure up to the standard of holiness that God calls us to. But what this does to us, it helps us hold Jesus in proper light. We can only see and understand the love of Christ in light of the punishment we truly deserve. That is how we can treasure Jesus and lift him high. I love this quote from John Piper that says, it's very hard to give up on the gospel if you believe there is a hell, that after this life there is an endless suffering for those who did not believe the gospel. And the same is true for you and me. If not for the grace of God, we would deserve hell. And if you have been saved by that, you are not far different from the person to your right or your left. They need Jesus. Are you willing to share with them? And the last, the last section here, uh, verse 13, says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And I, lo I love this truth as it claims we serve an ever-faithful God. Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. We are called, you and me, we are called to grow in the gospel. We are not called to be God. We will fail. We will fall short. But God is faithful. And I felt an urging in my spirit to just share this with the congregation today, thinking maybe there's one person in here that that's been their hurdle to following Jesus. As you've been hurt by the church, and I don't mean that by faith community church, I mean by the church, a church you were raised in, somebody that used to claim the name of Jesus but did you wrong. Has your faith been in that person and not in Jesus himself? 
And if so, I'm sorry. From the bottom, from the depth of my heart, I'm sorry that your faith has been injured. But verse 13 shows us that we serve a faithful God. And if you're willing to put your faith in Jesus, not in the church, not in somebody else that claims to be Jesus, but you own your faith for yourself, you have a God that can be trusted in. Jesus tells us this, that if we will seek him with all our heart, we will find him. We will find him. So in closing today, I'd just like to close in a word of prayer as we reflect on these truths. And um, my prayer is that you would be encouraged. Hardship is imminent. Suffering is a guarantee. But we have Jesus. Jesus lives in us and sends us outward in power. With the Great Commission, Jesus says... All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And he ends it by saying, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age.